it had a real actual cost in a way that I think, you know, it's it's very hard to, to tell often with mis and disinformation. So I, I do think this is a unique moment in that way. You, you know, because it's based around a, a natural disaster, you know, it's not just based around a political ideology. It's not just that, like, you know, this becomes a radicalization engine and just sort of adds to the toxicity in, in our politics and system. No, this is in the case of the Oregon wildfires and the, you know, the Antifa hoaxes, you had actual armed citizens trying to hunt down Antifa arsonists. And, you know, I, I believe they held at least one or two uh, freelance journalists at gunpoint. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, October 1st, 2020. We're bringing you another episode of our Arbiters of Truth series on disinformation. This week, Evelyn Dweck and I talked about how everything is on fire, not metaphorically, but literally. In recent months, wildfires in the American West have caused unprecedented devastation and forced thousands of people to evacuate their homes. And along with the fires, the West has been grappling with a surge of false material circulating online about the flames. But this isn't the first time wildfires and disinformation have gone together. This past December and January, Australia was hit with both a brutal bushfire season and a similar wave of disinformation and misinformation about what sparked the fires and the role of climate change. Evelyn and I spoke about the offline and online conflagrations on both sides of the Pacific with Charlie Wurzel of the New York Times and Cam Wilson, a reporter for Gizmodo Australia and Business Insider Australia. It's the Lawfare Podcast, October 1st. Everything is on fire. Cam and Charlie, thank you so much for joining us. So the the reason we asked you both to come on is that uh, the world has literally been on fire. And because everything nowadays is somehow a content moderation story, there's, of course, a, a platform and disinformation aspect. So we wanted to, to start by setting the scene a little bit. So Charlie, you live in Western Montana, maybe not right by the fires, but close enough that you've written about how they've affected your day-to-day life. Can you give listeners a sense of what the situation has been with the fires in the West and what it's like to live there right now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's been this summer, unlike anything that that I've personally ever lived through, um, it's it's a situation where you you notice it, you notice the the fires happening in, in one part of the country and uh, and they rage there and then the, the smoke and the eventually honestly the the fire travels uh, and so you know right now uh, I've been different different parts of the Mountain West and and the Pacific Northwest and I've been uh, outside of Seattle where uh, where I was engulfed in smoke for eight days uh, unable to see the sun unable to see uh, even the clouds uh, about five feet of visibility air quality you know around uh, 300 aqi which is you know extremely uh, hazardous and, and to be in a situation where I was actually one of the lucky people in that realm. Uh, you know, if you were living in uh, Northern California or Oregon or Eastern Washington, you were seeing air quality up in the 750 levels, which is, which is, you know, for those who don't understand that, it's, it, you know, it's the equivalent of smoking two packs of cigarettes a day. It is so extremely unhealthy that even, you know, going for a five-minute walk is, is is hazardous to your health potentially, and and it's so off the charts that uh, the people don't actually know 
you know, truly what the long-term effects of that kind of exposure for that short of time are. We, we know what it's like in, in other areas that have experienced poor air quality, but, um, but it's truly, you know, stifling in, in a way that it almost feels apocalyptic. It almost feels like the world is ending when it's happening. And, and yeah, and, and that's been, you know, sort of the, the general gist of, of, of watching this unfold is it is a climate disaster that is sort of radicalizing in nature because it's impossible to, imagine it's it's impossible not to see the effects rather uh, it's impossible to not to not think that uh you know what, what we are doing to the planet is having you know disastrous effects it is you know burning up burning up our land and also you know choking us to death and so i, I think that that element is sort of you know psychologically the the hardest to deal with because it, it's not one of those situations where it's like getting warmer or colder, or we're seeing, you know, more rainfall, or you have, you know, a really bad storm or a flood, and then it goes away. It's, it's sort of, you know, when, when the smoke hangs there for eight, eight days, uh, and you're trapped in your house without an air filter and starting to, uh, you know, actually have trouble breathing. Um, it really does feel like your, your life's in danger and that the, the planet's in danger. So that's sort of, you know, the, that might be a bit of a, a moody uh, answer to your question, but that's kind of like psychologically the, the feeling of ha- having that come. And that's been the experience of, you know, millions of Americans on the West Coast for, for the last month. So I deal with stress with humor, and that reminds me of one of my favorite jokes, which is the Charles Schultz quote, don't worry about the world coming to an end today, it's already tomorrow in Australia. Um, and <laughs> when you're painting that like apocalyptic picture, it sounds so familiar and brings back a big sense of deja vu for me, and I'm sure also, Cam, possibly for you, because of course, Australia went through a very similar natural disaster in December and January. So Cam, would you mind painting the picture a bit of what it was like? Like in Australia in, during that period and how bad it was? Yeah, absolutely, Evelyn. I mean, what Charlie said before rings really true to us. It seems like, you know, dealing with bushfires or, or wildfires, as you call them over there, is um, is fairly universal. But like you kind of mentioned, you know, it really started for us in our December, January um, time of the year. And if I can like allow you to like imagine, like this is the time when we all have time off. It's our summer and this is when all families are kind of getting together. And, and when it really, really got bad was over the Christmas, New Year's period. So, you know, people, um, you know, Australians often will travel, you know, hundreds um, or thousands of kilometers to see families spread across the country. And, you know, everyone's not working. And we just start, you know, hearing that the bushfires, which are a constant presence in Australian life, were, were worse than ever. It was one of our worst seasons ever. You know, experts were saying that, you know, many areas that had never been lit on fire were, were lighting on fire before because the temperature conditions were just so bad. And it was really, you know, when when I got into the office um, at the time I was working for, for BuzzFeed in Australia, by the time we got back into the office in, in I think it was January 5th or January 6th, we kind of, we knew then that it was really, really substantially different. And um, not only was it different in terms of the season that we were having, but also about the way that we were kind of getting the information about it. We really saw for for a first time, it was almost like a, 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 a like coming to America moment in terms of like 
uh, I guess, misinformation and social media experiencing the bushfires where it was this, this crazy experience where we were battling, you know, fires outside, the whole country was was absolutely engulfed in smoke. But also there was all this kind of, I guess, this information battle happening online as well that made it really hard to understand what exactly was happening and come to any real agreement over what was causing one of the worst bushfires um, seasons in Australian history. Yeah, so you tracked and reported on the false and misleading information that was circulating on social media during the crisis. Can you give us an overview of like what were the kinds of key narratives that were being circulated and how much of this stuff was there? Yeah, I mean, like it, like I kind of mentioned before, it, it really felt like for the first time that we had one of these massive information crises in Australia. I mean, I think that was also in part because, you know, it felt like the whole world was paying attention to Australia's bushfire season. And so not only were we dealing with the normal people and, you know, I guess normal um, actors in, in Australia, but also everyone else around the world um, was kind of having their say on it as well. And some of the major narratives that we kind of saw come out of it was obviously, as Charlie touched on, you know, what has been the influence of climate change on these bushfires and you know one perhaps the 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 strongest uh, i guess misinformation campaign in terms of um the breadth of support in terms of institutional support from you know even like major you know there was a, a major australian publications pushing stuff which was quickly debunked was this idea that you know it, it, that it was a arson had led to the severity of this bushfire season that it had been you know it, it like i guess essentially trying to say that let's not pay attention to the collective responsibility of how we're changing the planet but there are individuals who are essentially to kind of blame for why it's this bad so you know, that, that really was a, a massive thing. And you saw that kind of, you know, go from all the way from saying, you know, um, we had like Australia's national broadsheet newspaper. They came out with a quickly debunked article about saying how many arsons had been already recorded over the summer. And that number was quickly uh, picked up by many other people. You know, it was, it was retweeted and, and republished by, you know, Breitbart, by um, Donald Trump Jr., by, you know, many other kind of, you know, many of the, I guess, like uh, bad actors who many people would know on, on Twitter around the world. And so it went from that kind of, you know, essentially, you know, very basic kind of let's shift the narrative focus on individuals all the way to like, you know, you had the real conspiracy aspect to it, to people saying that it wasn't just that there was arson to blame, but it was actually, you know, climate change activists who were setting the fires to prove climate change. Um, something that you guys I know have kind of seen kind of play out over there. And then, I mean, you kind of had all this other, you know, I guess, misinformation, disinformation swirling around as well. You had the outright conspiracy stuff. Like, I mean, something that we actually imported, I think, from California wildfires the year before was there were people saying that the bushfire uh, map kind of lines up with where high-speed rail is. Then you had, you know, people sharing wrong graphics about the fires like celebrities like rihanna shared a, a, a really really misleading map to look like to make it look like uh, australia was more on fire than it actually was and then you also had people even just like capitalizing on the moment using it to try and you know grow their you know social media reach by you know sharing footage of of burning koalas that actually wasn't from the year to try and you know build their cloud and build their audience so i mean like always you know there's this huge mishmash of people with different kind of incentives, all looking to say, well, this is a moment the whole world is paying attention. What can we do to you know, push our agenda or further our cause? Yeah, I have to say, as an American, I feel this like visceral need to apologize for <laughs> contributing to that environment. But so, so Charlie, 
Does any of that sound familiar? What has the situation been like when it comes to disinformation in the fires in the U.S.? It's honestly, it's painful because it's it's just it's just the same damn thing. Um, like you almost just could copy and paste the answer <laughs> onto my voice, and 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 you'd have it. Um, no, it, it, it was it was exactly that. Like you, you know, it started out as a. Um, you know, it's a crisis event. So you have sort of like the breaking news element of it. And then once it sort of reaches a, uh, a level of intensity where it, it goes away from being a local story to a national story, then you get that, that, that feeling that everyone's paying attention to, to this one thing. This is the story in the world. And, and once that happens, then, you know, all, all bets are off and you immediately see it capitalized on by, by everyone from, you know, as Cam said, clout chasers uh, to celebrities, to the conspiracy theorists, to the political conspiracy theorists, to just the people who are just politicizing it, to the activists. And on, honestly, it was, it was all very, 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 very similar. It, you know, it immediately got spun into a narrative about, you know, anti-fascist protesters and, uh, you know, sort of combining that with a lot of uh, the narratives around unrest that's happening in, in American cities and, and protests and violence and property destruction. And, you know, property destruction becomes then destruction of public lands or, uh, you know, arsonists setting fires. But then, uh, you know, if you, if you tracked it, I, I went on to the, uh, the now banned from Reddit uh, website, the Donald, uh, which is now just a forum that's hosted separately and was watching, you know, these, completely Byzantine threads of people trying to take apart pictures to try to see, uh, you know, analyzing whether or not this was a gas canister on the back of a fireman and whether or not he was an anti-fascist activist instead of a fireman or whether the gas can was for the chainsaw that was next to him. And then this whole long discussion of, well, they want you to think that it's for the chainsaw. They want us to, or they, they want us to think that, you know, that this, that they're setting these fires, but actually it's just using it to discredit our movement. So we look dumb. Uh, and, and it was just, you know, they just people playing games with each other and driving themselves absolutely insane and trying to, you know, figure out the information warfare angle to this. But, you know, at, at the end of the day, it's, it's exactly the same patterns it's everyone seeing a massive event and trying to figure out how to immediately latch onto it and spin it to their narrative for their own benefit whether that's adding followers or you know trying to continue to radicalize people in a political way so one of the interesting things about and depressing things about the disinformation around the fires in the American West is that I feel like often there's this debate of, you know, how do we know what how much of an effect disinformation has? Like, how would we cover that? And in the West, there's news reports about law enforcement helpline 911 being swamped with false reports about Antifa setting forest fires at a time when officials obviously needed to be focused on keeping people safe. The New York Times had a report about people in Oregon refusing to evacuate for the fear that Antifa would raid their homes in their absence. Um, so I'm curious for both of your thoughts on this. I wonder, Charlie, if you wouldn't mind talking about, you know, if you have a sense of what the real life, you know, or the immediate effects of this have been. Um, and then Cam, I'm also curious if you know of any stories about real world effects of the disinformation in Australia or whether the effects were more inchoate. Yeah, so 
You know, I, I don't know, you know, very specifically if you can ever pin down, you know, the, the number of people who who fled, who didn't flee because of that and, and whether or not you know, they jeopardized their own safety in some way. But but it definitely did happen. I mean, there were reports of that and the tip lines were clogged. The FBI had to spend time, you know, trying to debunk these hoaxes or at least, you know, message that debunking uh, across different social media channels. Like, I mean, this is all time that can be spent elsewhere, right, for for major organizations. So it had a real actual cost in a way that I think, you know, it's it's very hard to to tell often with mis and disinformation. So I, I do think this is a unique moment in that way. You, you know, because it's based around a a natural disaster, you know, it's not just based around a political ideology. It's not just that like, you know, this becomes a radicalization engine and just sort of adds to the toxicity in in our politics and system. No, this is in the case of the Oregon wildfires and the, you know, the Antifa hoaxes, you had actual armed citizens trying to hunt down Antifa arsonists and, you know, I, I believe they held at least one or two uh, freelance journalists at gunpoint. And I, I heard other reports that, you know, they they bothered um, some volunteer firefighters who, you know, didn't have, you know, the particular uniforms and questioned them and thought that they were up to something suspicious. So you're seeing like, you know, a very real threatening element happen as a direct result of a piece of content. And I think that, that is, you know, it's, it's not completely novel, but it is it, it is sort of a, a one-to-one ratio in a way that it's is not as normal. It's okay. And what about in Australia? Yeah, look, I don't think it's it's quite been to the same extent that it has been in the US, um, <laughs> thankfully. I, I mean like and and I think there's, you know, a couple of reasons for that. Like our media, we definitely have partisan media, but it hasn't been to the same extent where there's a kind of almost like, you know, a different kind of media universes in Australia to the same extent. And the other thing is that we also have a a, a national broadcaster in Australia, who is very, very active amongst bushfire season. And they really, you know, they're really the most trusted uh, resource, even by people who might not like the the institution generally, um, to get information via radio, but also via TV and, and the internet now. Um, so really, you know, that that I think does go a long way to kind of, I guess, keeping people more to reality. But, but I guess generally, you know, it's impossible not to see how the particular debate over was it essentially climate change that has influenced the season or was it to some extent either the personal responsibility of criminals or also there was a lot of people blaming we have kind of the two major parties but then also we've got a, a one of the another party that's left to a left-wing party which is the Greens party they're like many other countries that you know the quite environmentalist country uh, party and and they were they became a bit of a scapegoat for how they managed the the kind of national parks and that kind of stuff that essentially had laid the you know allegedly had laid the the groundwork for the fires to be so bad. Now that of course wasn't true. You know we like I said before the conditions were so bad that you know swamps were were being lit on fire. So like you know the conditions were just so exceptionally bad that no matter what happened, you know these bushfires were going to be bad. But despite that, you know this focus by um, like I said, mainstream publications, because we have a, a one of the most concentrated media markets in the world and one that's dominated by uh, News Corp as well, that really, I guess, kept the debate to such a large extent on, I guess, away from the influence of climate change that, you know, despite having this, you know, really, really long bushfire season, like I know when we introduced, we talked about December and January, that's really when it got bad for the majority of Australia. 
But, you know, we had a serious bushfires as early as July, like last year, which I guess for you guys would be like having a wildfire in, in January. Like, it's, it's just insane. You know, despite having this prolonged bushfire season, you know, there's still no pressure or no, I guess, perceived pressure by the political class to really, really engage with this idea of climate change. And, and I really see that as directly linked to, again, the ability to push the debate away from that. Yeah, so I think situating it in that broader media environment is really helpful um, and the sort of different effects of it. And I think this is where the stories do start to diverge a little bit because the platform responses were also different. So, Cam, you've laid out for us sort of how much mis- and disinformation there was during the fires uh, in Australia. What did platforms do about it? Yeah, so I mean, it, so I mean, the major platforms that you know we were really thinking about were were Facebook, Twitter, and to some extent YouTube, and and really, really, you know, the majority of the focus that we did was on on Facebook because that is, I think, there's seventeen million out of twenty five million of Australians on it. That is by far our most major social media platform, and the answer is they didn't really do that much. They like they have you know in other places. I think internationally we have the uh, independent fact checking program, which is where um, as most people probably know, they have um, independent partners who can fact check some content and when they determine to, it to contain false information, they kind of make it be seen by less people and will put a prompt over it saying it contains false information. But the amount that they kind of dealt with was very, very small. I think, um, you know, in the middle of January, so this is after, you know, a, a couple of really, you know, long weeks of sustained intense bushfires and intense misinformation, they had done, I think, like something about between like, 15 and 18 um, fact checks. Yeah. Can I follow up on that too? Because I think you've done some reporting on this. How many independent fact checkers are there in Australia? Um, at the time we had uh, just seven. That was across two different news organisations. And one of, one of those news organisations um, has since kind of semi-phoenix. So I'm not even sure if we have that many anymore. Um, but we really, you know, we have, we have seven fact checkers for for 25 million people. Plus, I think they also cover some of the other countries in the Asia-Pacific region. So, you know, it really, really is such a small amount. You know, I, I looked into it, and I think at the time, this was when I looked earlier this year, they had done, I think, a, a total of like 200 or 250 fact checks, which ended up being something like, you know, uh, a 10 to 15 a month. So, so really, really, you know, the sheer amount of misinformation, particularly when it's the whole world paying attention to it, you know, this independent fact-checking program was really, really just, you know, it, it was a drop in the bucket. It made not massive significant difference. I think the other thing is that, you know, it's, it's really looking at the stuff that they were paying attention to. You know, the fact-checks that I saw were mostly about things like, you know, oh, this 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 map shared by Rihanna is incorrect, which is, of course, great. You know, we don't want misinformation out there. Everyone should be trying to contribute to, you know, I guess, trying to be credible and so we can all believe what we see. But ultimately, you know, that stuff before when we're talking about these really like, you know, more politicized debates around the role of climate change, you know, th those were really just like just going and, and really not being stopped. And I, I'll kind of preempt, I know what is happening in the US, but we really didn't have in the same way Facebook actually take down content at all that they found was contributing to real world harm. You know, like even though there was information that you could say, well, this is, you know, clearly is, is, you know, if you're accusing people of, of, you know, setting these fires, that kind of stuff, that seems pretty, pretty full on. Facebook, you know, stuck to the kind of uh, company line and said that, you know, we, we don't think that contributes to real world harm. And in which case, you know, we're leaving it up. But of course, we're making efforts to make it less visible. 
So Charlie, I think this is this is also, as Evelyn said, it's like where it gets interesting, Facebook's actions start to look very different in the Australian and the American context. Can you talk a little bit about how Facebook has responded to the fires in the American West and sort of the extent to which that's a continuation with or a divergence from how it's traditionally handled misinformation and disinformation? Yeah. I'm, so, you know, to some extent, there's a difference in that Facebook took some action, uh, you know, in, in some extent, in the, in, in the most extreme sort of use cases where these are sort of the ones that are, that are um, you know, s- surrounded with like uh, arson hoaxes and things like that. There were, as we talked about before, leading to people not leaving their homes and clogging up tip lines. That uh, that was information that uh, that Facebook's uh, spokespeople said, I think around September 12th, that they were starting to remove those. Now, the first instances that I saw of those hoaxes was uh, actually on, on a couple of them uh, late on at night on the West Coast, September 7th. So you're talking about a period of about five days there where Facebook didn't take any action. And uh, those that was obviously, you know, the, the real peak of those fires. And and when you're talking about armed gangs of vigilantes uh, going around trying to, you know, hunt down fake arsonists, uh, five days matters, right? Uh, it's, 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 uh, it's not exactly an, like a quick, uh, swift reaction. So that, that's kind of the first part. But, you know, they did, they did take action. I, I think... The reason why it happened and the reason why it's sort of why the pressure was there is because these fires played directly into a series of sprawling and, and, and overlapping crises that are sort of just enmeshed in American life right now. And one of them obviously is the, you know, the fear and concern about liberal protesters or Black Lives Matter protesters or anti-fascist protesters, however you want to categorize them, and and the election, you know, uh, Donald Trump, you know, deciding to run on a law and order platform and sort of you know increase the pressure on these protests nationally led to a, you know a week or two before we had you know the the violence in Kenosha and then Facebook's involvement in you know not taking down pages quick enough and and being seen as uh, you know, potential vector for increasing the, uh, you know, the violence there on the ground. I think that they were sort of, you know, as they have been for a lot of the summer and during the coronavirus pandemic on their back foot when it comes to this stuff and and really feeling the pressure. And and I think what it, what it speaks to is the nature of how all these crises are intertwined and sort of crashing onto each other at, at all points and making each one worse and worse and worse, you know. I think if you, you know, if you didn't have the coronavirus pandemic where everyone is, you know, trapped indoors and increasingly online and increasingly anxious and, you know, massive job loss in America, you know, that adds to the political polarization. Uh, And then you have, you know, you have this big consequential election and that's pushing down on it. And then you have, you know, people trying to leverage all that. So they see these fires, they see this moment as something where they have to, they have to use it to their benefit, to their advantage. Uh, Because as, as Cam said, the whole world is watching at this moment. And I think that's the reason why Facebook took action is because they see this as part of, the, you know, a, a broader uh, ecosystem of misinformation. It's a lot of, you know, similar actors, similar people. And that is, that is why you saw it happen in this case. I think if this was not a, an American election year and it wasn't a, you know, a presidential election, 
I don't, I don't think you would have seen the same response from Facebook. Yeah, I think that's really helpful because it gets to something that, you know, I, I was feeling and I think a lot of us were feeling in that moment because I can sort of hear the meh in your voice about Facebook's response to the disinfo around the fires. But also, you know, as someone that's watched Facebook for a while in this space, it did sort of feel a little bit like a big step forward in the sense that they usually are so insistent of on not taking down content purely on the basis that it's false. And here, you know, it really felt like they were at least doing something. And the contrast with their actions in the Australian fire context was just so stark. And I sort of felt like the, the Australian part of my Twitter feed was doing a double take as we were watching Facebook's response in America compared to what they'd done um, in Australia. And I think sort of the, the context that you lay out there does sort of partially explain that but I think there's also sort of this sense of like this repeating pattern of things play out around the world and they don't get a lot of attention until they happen in America and then they do get some attention so Cam I'm, I'm just wondering can you talk a little bit about what it's like to report on the internet and on platforms from a middle power like does does Facebook take your calls <laughs> yeah, yeah, they do. Um, I'm sure that they probably think that I'm a bit of a pain in the behind all the time. Look, I mean, the, the way that it kind of feels, I was thinking about this last night, is that it's like you're dealing in customer service, you know, with someone at, you know, a, a big retailer who essentially isn't really, doesn't really have the ability to actually do anything about your, um, you know, questions or concerns other than kind of trot out the the party line, you know, you're saying, oh, I, I, you know, this isn't good enough. And they're saying, oh, this is just company policy. That's what it feels like dealing with Facebook, you know, in Australia, all the Facebook reps that I worked with, very lovely, you know, get back to me, you know, that that's fine. It's not like they're like, well, you're an Australian journalist. We don't care about that. But the feeling that I kind of get is that, you know, we are so far away from the mothership, both, you know, the, the press here, but also I think Facebook here that, you know, when we have concerns, when we see, you know, something that's kind of happening, it's almost like it's it's not really it doesn't really filter over to the to the US, which is where it feels like you know the kind of all all these decisions are being made. Yeah, so I mean, like we're pretty tapped into the to the US here. I mean, of course, everyone is. You know, I'm an internet reporter. Sometimes I say that you know I'm an Australian internet reporter, but really that's a kind of stupid title because like there's no such thing as the Australian internet. You know, the internet doesn't show borders, and that's what we kind of see with you know this. Um, the bushfire season and how everyone focused on it, well, you know, we're seeing every single person from around the world, no matter where they are, what their role is, they're all having the say in it as well. It, it's kind of hard to, you know, just, I guess, break things down by geography. But when we see it happening, when we when we then see, you know, the same things being played out in the US, and this is something that Charlie's written about before, about how that, you know, we're seeing this kind of maturation of the, um, you know, information ecosystem where people know, you know, they, they know the positions, they know when this happens, this is what I'm going to do to spin this. And this is what I'm going to say. And this is the argument I'm going to put forward. We saw that just playing out almost as if it was like given a test run in Australia, you know, the same, you know, essentially, I guess, you know, ideologically similar arguments slightly change, you know, from Greens or climate change activists to Black Lives Matter activists or, or Antifa, you know, these are the people who are setting fires. That was uh, kind of, I guess, seeded here and then brought back because people who are paying attention to it here could then roll it out. And they already knew that it's an effective, evocative, emotive argument. So, I mean, yeah, I guess to kind of sum it up, you know, 
we're all part of the same ecosystem. We know that. But sometimes it feels like just by, about the way that these companies are structured is that we really, really don't have that same kind of... It's almost like the influence goes one way, but not the other. But that's not really how the internet works. The internet, the influence goes both ways. Yeah, Charlie, I'm curious for, for your thoughts on that. You know, uh, I think it was in 2018... Uh, maybe it was 2017. I was doing some reporting and speaking to a couple of executives who had uh, who had left Facebook or, or senior employees rather uh, who had left Facebook and trying to really get an understanding of like what <laughs> what happened in, in in the lead up to the election. Just of constant curiosity for for me and and everyone else. And a big thing that few of them drove home was this like complete obsessiveness about conquering the world's internet, you know, expanding into different countries, just complete, like, you know, that, that idea of, of winning the scale game and, 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 you know, honestly, world domination, uh, (laughs) to, to put it bluntly. And, and the, the disconnect between that and then just having absolutely no, international experience or, or even more than that, like curiosity, like just not really caring. And, and, you know, obviously this is then borne out with, with what, you know, what you see in the Philippines, what you saw in, in uh, Myanmar with the, uh, you know, the, the absolutely horrible uh, Bangladesh, like the horrible consequences of just going into a place and not understanding what's happening there. But, but this, this real like dichotomy there of just being obsessed about plugging in. And, and I think that that in curiosity is, is, is really actually is still a feature at Facebook in, internally. It's just, you know, it's not, they hire people to sort of, you know, deal with the different regions outside of America, but it's never, it never is the, you know, the true and primary focus. And I think that that, that really does play out with the, um, you know, what we're seeing with the mis- and disinformation policies, like, I think they're still obviously very American centric, they're always going to be kind of geared towards, you know, the, the the weird intricacies of American politics and the way that that works. And, and I think as a result, it is a play other places in the world can become a playground for, you know, these same actors, like Cam was saying earlier, you know, like Donald Trump Jr. is getting involved, you know, you have Breitbart, you have like, you have these, these American political entities who are latching onto stories all over the world, because they work to, you know, to galvanize an audience to get engagement. And, and also they're, they're like, they're, they're proving grounds to some degree. Like, I really, truly, you know, feel strongly that Australia was a test case in some, in some ways for this, right? It's how do you spin a a really apocalyptic, really radicalizing, like I, I really feel that these wildfires were a radicalizing event for people because the, the sky is blotted out by ash for multiple days at a time. Like it's going to make you kind of care about the climate, right? Unless you can find a way to really spin all of that and, and, and use it to, you know, to, as a political weapon uh, to keep people from understanding the urgency of the climate crisis. And that is what I think, you know, people learned in Australia and saw the effectiveness of, you know, being able to spin it this way. So, you know, to, to sort of succinctly answer the question, like I, I think Facebook turns a, too much of a blind eye or is incurious about the events around the world and people who, uh, who ultimately are going to bring these tactics to the political battles in the United States where they do care, uh, know that and sort of, you know, work while Facebook sleeps. Can I just add in one more thing as well? Like, you know, people might have um, heard about how 
Um, Facebook right now is in a in a bit of a tussle with the Australian government and our consumer watchdog over this idea of paying for news. Um, they're trying to implement this code that it was essentially mandate Facebook to pay for the, the links and the headlines and the stuff that show up from news articles on their service, Google as well. And in response, Facebook's, they've threatened, they say, if this goes through, we will just get rid of news on the platform, not only Australian news, all kinds of news. That kind of shows that, you know, Facebook, I have no doubt that they want to expand worldwide because they have a mission to connect people, but also they want to be able to, you know, advertise to, you know, the whole world's population. But when push comes to shove, you know, they they really prioritize some areas, specifically the US over others. In Australia, you know, I don't think they're actually that worried specifically about whatever it's going to cost for our population, but it's the idea that they don't want this idea to spread around the world. And because of that, they're prepared to drastically change their service, perhaps make it significantly less, you know, I guess less sticky for users because they don't want this idea to spread to other governments. So, you know, right now we're kind of, we're seeing that straight up, you know, Facebook has priorities and if, you know, push comes to shove, they're willing to, you know, uh, I guess, you know, prioritize some places over others. Yeah, I mean, there's no starker representation of that than uh, I think it's this week or last week, you know, Australia's having a parliamentary uh, hearing about disinformation in Australia and foreign interference. Um, and Facebook was due to appear and it sent a like, sorry, um, we can't make it. Can we do sometime after the US election note to Australia's parliament? Because, you know, they've got their hands full at the moment. I mean, it's just a it's sort of a perfect uh, encapsulation of priorities, really. That's, I got to say, that's pretty rough. <laughs> um, so, so Cam and Charlie, while we have you both here, there's another, I think, really good example of how disinformation and misinformation has crossing borders, in this case, specifically between the US and Australia. And that is, of course, QAnon, um, which started in the US and now has somewhat bizarrely spread to Australia as well. So just we've talked about it on the podcast before, but for listeners who aren't totally up to speed, Charlie, could you maybe talk about sort of how QAnon started? And then Cam, um, if you could walk through, you know, what it's like in Australia right now. Uh, I'm just laughing because as you were like winding up there, I was like, oh, she's going to define it. And like, I'm not going to have to do the thing that I do (laughs) where it's like, Charlie, take this like incredibly complex and troubling conspiracy theory and give me the, uh, the quick rundown. But anyhow, uh, not in 30 seconds, I guess I will. Um, okay. Uh, it is a theory started by an anonymous person posing as a uh, high level intelligence community member in the U S government, uh, suggesting that elites in the world, including many political elites, Democrats, including most notably Hillary Clinton, uh, are engaged in a uh, in a vast child sex trafficking conspiracy that has both uh, like pagan and devilish elements, but uh, but but is is mostly concerned with world domination in order to protect uh, these these horrible behaviors and and this this child sex trafficking and that and that uh, Donald Trump is the savior who is going to sort of unravel uh, the whole plan which is protected by uh, the deep state so that's sort of the American version of this but it's a uh, it's it's as you said morphed into kind of a, a global conspiracy yeah so so cam can you talk about what it's like in in Australia I confess I was completely baffled when I learned that there were QAnon believers in Australia because as Charlie says like it's 
so American. It's it's so tied to the American political situation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It is a bit strange. I mean, like I've you know I've seen reporting that it's around the world, um, and it is absolutely in Australia. And and I guess the best way to kind of explain it is that you know we really do import a lot of the culture and a lot of the culture wars from the US. And this is really the extension of it. You know, we see people who are honestly, you know, they're believing, you know, they believe there are plenty of Australians who believe that Donald Trump will save them. Um, you know, they're worried about Democrats, all these people who, you know, to be blunt, don't really have any real impact on their lives. You know, they're spending their days obsessively, you know, trying to decipher um, the the Q drops or, or like whatever or, or the whole lore around it because they are so interested in it. And this has really been facilitated through, you know, social media, that this is the way that someone in Australia, the way that someone, you know, in Narrabri, a town of 6,000 people, um, that's 500 kilometres or 300 and something miles um, inland um, from Sydney, that's the way that they can be so involved in this because their Facebook feed, their Twitter feed, um, their you know YouTube feed, these can all show them the stuff that allows them to kind of engage in it. So, and I, I guess, you know, there are some kind of differences between, I think, the Australian, I guess, the kind of, uh, I guess, the demographic of, of QAnon believers. We do see unlike the US, which I think it, of course, is very broad, but generally maybe tends to be a little bit older. We're seeing this really um, kind of distinct, younger, almost like enmeshed with wellness and kind of, you know, alternative medicine. That is really where it seems to have it, a lot of the base of its support. Um, but it really, really is mostly still US-centric. There are some kind of incorporations of Australian previous conspiracies and also kind of, I guess, almost like localizing some of the QAnon um, beliefs. Like, for instance, I remember, you know, a few months ago, there was this talk about, oh, the tunnels under New York, they were being used for child trafficking. Well, that kind of then got rolled out in Melbourne down here, the same kind of idea. And then also kind of interesting, you also saw that these, you know, other international QAnon believers would then kind of bring this Australian localized version back in and, and say, oh, look, you know, it's even happening in Australia as well. Look how far this kind of um, conspiracy goes. So I would just kind of sum it up and saying, you know, our conspiracy, I guess, and misinformation ecosystem is still a lot smaller. I think that, you know, for a variety of reasons, Australians have are probably, you know, because that information ecosystem aren't as still quite as prone to some other areas as believing conspiracy theories. But those people who do, they really, really are plugged into the international ecosystem more than anything else. Yeah, Charlie, I'm just curious for your reaction to that. Like, does the global spread of QAnon surprise you at all? Well, not not in so much that, you know, it really has evolved into a broader story of, of almost like a biblical good versus evil. I think that, and I think that that's a, you know, that is a component to a number of conspiracy theories, but, but you know, QAnon is really something that is a, what sets it apart is the is the broad tent nature of it. I think, um, and and what makes it you know so dangerous is is that it, it sort of seems to latch on to other conspiracy theories with its tentacles and sort of you know suck the the life force out of it and and, and kind of you know then become it. So you know yeah, the way it's it's latched on to the you know the sort of uh, more banal parts of the you know child trafficking movement and save the children, and then the way in which it's it's really moved in in recent months into, as Cam was saying, the sort of alternative wellness, spiritual healing, 
even you know anti-vaccine communities, which which is obviously a global phenomenon, and that's sort of a way in which it can it can spread. But uh, so you know, it doesn't it doesn't really surprise me that it's happening. But you know, it, it's really like. I, I'm not feeling uh, advanced levels of patriotism on any front at the moment, but it's it's really it's so disheartening to hear that you know like you know one of our one of America's like greatest cultural exports right now uh, is uh, really destabilizing uh, conspiracy theories that you know threaten to destroy uh, a shared sense of reality. I think that that's you know I, I can't imagine uh, working at you know. What some of these companies that are trying to tamp it down and and really can't, and knowing that that you know they're partly responsible for for this happening across across the world, it's it's really disheartening. So we we just have a few minutes left, but to to wrap up, I wanted to pivot them back from QAnon to the fires, from one depressing topic to another. <laughs> so, you know, the fire season is, you know, it's midway through in, in the American West. It's about to ramp up again in Australia. There's obviously this sort of additional toxic stew of political tensions of, you know, America fears over Antifa, the QAnon. Have we learned anything from this experience? Have the platforms learned anything? You know, is there, should our expectation just be that this is going to keep getting worse as the fires get worse because climate change is getting worse? Or are, you know, are we sort of stuck in an an endless doom spiral? I realize that's kind of an impossible question, but I I am (laughs) curious for both of your thoughts on it. I hope that some of the lessons and some of the developments in the US, in, you know, specifically that, I guess the propensity to to delete stuff that they've determined to be imminently harmful, and I guess you know that's kind of zooming out to be like Facebook to to be more likely to say that this kind of information um, out there is having yeah, direct harm on people. That is something that I would like to see um in Australia. But other than that, I'm not really sure that the company has done a big like you know mea culpa over their role in it. I and and. I mean, we've focused on on Facebook, but of course, this is other platforms as well. You know, like these problems are going to keep on happening. You know, climate change is accelerating. Australia really, really is on the forefront of it. Um, we're kind of dealing with it now. And but I, what I think that you know these platforms haven't really come to terms with is this idea that essentially we've got these kind of online mercenaries. You know, these people who will jump on any moment and use it to spin it and and um you know for their own advantage, but often to the to the disadvantage of the people who are directly affected by it. You know, the people who are influenced by the reality of of these problems. You know, I think you know that there's an increasingly obvious case that you know despite the fact that often these these events are happening in, in countries where they might have small staff, they are global events. And so this idea that it becomes mostly the problem and, and only paid attention to by the small staff in that country doesn't really make sense. So, I mean, hopefully that we increasingly, you know, acknowledge the international interconnected nature of all this. I don't know. I just think that, like I kind of said before, like, you know, I, I read from Charlie like years ago, he, he called it earlier, that people are getting quicker at this. They are understanding where the it's almost like you know where their positions are and they're ready to go when something like this happens we're only going to see people get better and better at this every year they're going to be able to iterate and you know get more um you know these arguments and and these these i guess you know decisions that they make that will make it harder and harder to determine the truth we have to become more and more prepared for that 
I haven't seen anything to suggest that we're significantly more prepared for that this year, but maybe just the idea that we already have some experience that we're already, you know, to some extent inoculated against some of the misinformation might help. Um, but I guess it remains to be seen. I agree with a lot of that. Um, I think that like we are to some extent we're learning, right? Like or we like the, the companies who who are you know engaging in this faith, like well, let's just Facebook, uh, Twitter, like they're learning in in some sense from these things. I don't think they're learning fast enough. I don't know that they're always learning the exact right lesson, but but I mean there is some semblance of progress. But you know I I really agree with Cam on the on the notion of this is just getting more and more sophisticated. You know, somebody, somebody I spoke with in this, in this world about this said, just like take, take any, uh, any of us in this conversation as an example, they, 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 they did this to me. And, and, you know, they said, think about where you were um, with your own online presence and audience and, you know, uh, sophistication in calling out, you know, and, and processing misinformation and tracking it down and knowing where it came from, you know, in, in, think about where you were in, in 2015 and think about where you are now and think about the size of your audience then and the size of your audience now and think about what your audience expects from you then and what they expect now. And if you go through that, what you at least what what it realized for me is like, I am more efficient at spotting this stuff. I have a more efficient, I have a better, more nuanced critique. I'm, I'm better at expressing that opinion than I was. Uh, I know where the, you know, the holes in the argument are, where to, where to stay away from, you know, all, all those, all those different things. Like you just know, you know how to, how to do it. And you have a bigger audience that expects that from you. Like these networks are getting denser and denser and, and, and people understand with each kind of crisis exactly where they need to go to turn the screw to get it to you know reflect back positively on them and negatively on on you know their opponents in, in whatever what however you want to classify their opponents and so that that's really you know that sophistication is moving far faster i think personally than the sophistication of the platforms to act very quickly and also just to have like the confidence of their convictions right i mean like the the great thing about Facebook taking down stuff with this fire is it was very clear that they were saying we're taking down content that is real, like resulting in real world harm to real people sort of immediately that one-to-one -one thing that we talked about earlier. And I think that's really good, but they rarely have the confidence of their convictions when it comes to these takedowns, sort of that, that directly. And so where I despair a little bit is that it's not that I think these companies, you know, couldn't do anything or that they're, you know, they're hell bent on being chaos agents and, and, you know, helping destabilize political systems all over the world. I think that they're, you know, they're generally oftentimes trying to do the right thing, but I think the sophistication and the density of these networks is growing at a rate that really outpaces them. And I don't know how we slow that down. All right. Well, on our characteristic cheerful note, we're going to leave it there. Charlie, Cam, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to The Arbiters of Truth, a Lawfare Podcast miniseries on disinformation. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back for another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan, our audio engineer is Zachary Frank, and our producer is Jen Pacha Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare podcast on whatever app you use, and thanks for listening. <laughs>